A boy is born into a small house with no windows and no way out. He's locked inside, never given a chance to see the outside world. This house has no windows, so he never once sees the outside world. He's provided with food and clothing, as well as books and some toys for entertainment, but that is it. Obviously, this boy will come to believe that this house is all that exists. His view of the world will be so limited, so confined, that if he were to one day break down the door of this house, he would be in absolute awe of all that lies around him. The grandeur, the sheer magnitude and marvel of the surrounding world will astound him and leave him wondering how he ever considered his previous existence to be a full life. This idea connects to a fundamental theme in this week's Parsha, Shmini. Parsha Shmini is infamous for the shocking sin and death of Nadav and Avihu. The Pasuk describes how during the Chanukah HaMishkan, the inauguration of the tabernacle, Nadav and Avihu offered the Ketores, the spice offering, and were engulfed by divine flames. What is both striking and perplexing about this episode, though, is the fact that it is unclear what their sin was and why it warranted such a harsh punishment. What was so terrible about their actions? Is it so dreadful and appalling to bring an offering to Hashem? To answer these questions, we have to go through a range of possible answers until we ultimately develop a much deeper understanding of this topic. So to mention a few opinions in brief, Rashi quotes Rabbi Eliezer's position that Nadav and Aviv violated the prohibition of being Mora Bifnei Rabo, teaching halacha in front of their Rabbi, Moshe Rabbeinu. Another opinion mentioned in the Sifra is that Nadav and Avihu sinned by entering the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, as the holiest place in the world is completely off limits to all except the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And even for him, it's only allowed on Yom Kippur. Rabbi Akiva suggests that the problem was where the flame was from. They sinned by bringing a forbidden fire in Eish Zara into the Mizbeach. Rashi also quotes Rabbi Shmuel's position, suggesting that their error lay in the fact that they got drunk before performing the Avodah. There is, however, something missing from all of these approaches. Rashi quotes the Midrash, which explains that Moshe already knew that the two holiest people in Klai Yisrael would die on this very day, the day of the Chanukah HaMishkan. Moshe had thought that these two people would be Aaron and himself, but it turned out to be Nadav and Avihu instead. So clearly Nadav and Avihu were on, the tr- on a tremendously lofty level. If this is so, how could they have done something so dreadfully and obviously wrong? Something that resulted in such a harsh heavenly punishment. So the Ramban and Rabino Bachia therefore suggest a different answer. That the only problem with Nadav and Avihu's actions was that they brought their Ketoris offering without being commanded to do so. 
And this view is drawn out from the explicit statement of the Pasuk itself that Nadav and Avi brought an offering that they were not commanded to bring. Based on this, though, we have a new difficulty. If Nadav and Avi's sin was only that they did something which they were not commanded to do, our question is strengthened. What was so abhorrent about their actions that it merited such extreme punishment? Granted, Hashem didn't command them to bring the Katoris, but they didn't do something prohibited, only something that they weren't commanded to do. So in order to understand this topic, then we must take a deeper look into the bigger picture of what it means to be commanded in the first place. What is the difference between being commanded, being mitzvah, and being enu mitzvah, not commanded? So the Gemara in Baba Kama, Da'afalam and Chesam and Aleph, and Pei and Aleph states that it is greater for you to do something which you have been commanded to do by Hashem than to do it of your own volition. Meaning, it is better to perform a mitzvah, a commandment of obedience to Hashem's will, than to do it spontaneously, of your own will. Now, at first glance, this appears to be counterintuitive. Wouldn't it be better to do it of your own volition? Wouldn't this be the more genuine expression of divine service? Instead of doing it because you have to do it, you're doing it because you want to do it. The first explanation of this statement lies in the principle of ego. We tend to prefer doing things only when we want to do them. We don't like being told what to do. We automatically shy away from external instruction. As obedience to others means giving up our ego, our sense of control, and our illusion of being ultimately superior. A mitzvah, however, is about negating our ego and submitting to the will of Hashem. Hashem gives us instruction in the form of mitzvahs, and we obey them because He told us to. And as we do so, even if we may not understand or agree with everything, we submit our ego and acknowledge Hashem as the ultimate source of truth and his instructions as the guide to this world. The second explanation of why performing mitzvot is superior to acting out of your own volition requires us to understand the concept of mitzvah on a deeper level. The simple understanding of a mitzvah is that it is a command from Hashem asking us to obey his will. The Maharal, however, suggests a different and deeper explanation leading to a fundamentally deeper understanding of mitzvahs. He explains that a mitzvah is rooted in the word tzavta, which means connection. A mitzvah isn't simply obeying a command as a soldier obeys the will of his commander. Rather, it is a way for us to connect spiritually and existentially to Hashem our source of existence. Whenever we do an action, we are acting as an extension and manifestation of the one who willed and commanded it. When Hashem commands something and we fulfill that command, we have bonded to and become part 
of something infinitely greater than ourselves, to Hashem Himself. Hashem wanted this to happen, and you are now accepting His will, attaching yourself to His will, and making His will your own. By performing this act, you are now becoming a true embodiment and reflection of Hashem in this world. This is why it's infinitely greater to be commanded than to act spontaneously. Because when we do something without being commanded, all you are reflecting is yourself. This is your personal form of avoda, one disconnected from Hashem. Instead of manifesting something transcendent, all that we manifest is our own limited smallness. Now, of course, spontaneity is great, but you have to place the spontaneity within the structure of mitzvah, within the confines and container of the mitzvah. The ultimate depth of this, though, is that as a tzalem elokim, your own root will is Hashem's will. You don't give up your will to adopt His will. Rather, you become deeply self-aware to the extent that you realize that His will is your root will. This comes with the realization that you are neither the center of the world nor the source of your own existence. Hashem is. Let's briefly explore this topic. See, Many people think that before Hashem created the world, there was nothing. On the contrary, until Hashem created the world, there was everything. There was only Hashem Himself. As the Arizal, the Ramchal, and others explain, Hashem created the world by making a makam, a space within Himself. Just as everything in the physical world needs space to exist, existence itself required a space to exist. For example, if you have a cup which is completely filled with metal, you won't be able to pour any water into it. Only if there is a space in the cup, if there is room for the water, Can you pour water into the cup? Before Hashem created the world, there was no space for us to exist. As all of existence was occupied by Hashem, Enod Milvado. To create the physical world, Hashem made space within Himself for us to exist. This is why Hashem is referred to as the Makum of the world, the place of the world. We exist within Hashem, so to speak. Just imagine if you created a person within your mind. You gave him a life story, a family, a role to play, and now you've made space within yourself for this person to exist. You are thinking him into existence. However, he only continues to exist so long as you continue to think about him and give him existence. The moment you stop thinking about him, he ceases to exist. The same is true for each of us. We only continue to exist as long as Hashem continues to will us into existence. This is the true nature of a mitzvah. A mitzvah is connecting ourselves to Hashem, the ultimate root of reality, the source of all existence, the makom of the world, and attaching ourselves to His will. 
Just like the boy from the original story who suddenly realized that the world was infinitely larger than his narrow perspective, a mitzvah allows us to expand infinitely beyond the limited borders of our own ego, connecting to the infinite. In doing so, we become partners with Hashem Himself. And our sense of self expands infinitely. We can now understand the Ramban and Rabbi Bachia's explanation. Nadav and Avihu were not commanded to bring the Tatoris offering. They brought it of their own desire and volition. In doing so, they reflected their own ego and nothing more. True, they had pure intentions. But this was not the will of Hashem. It's also interesting to note that this is one of the explanations of Adam Harishonsen, the Chet Egel, Shaulsen, Davidson, and many other fundamental errors throughout Tanakh. And while these applications are beyond the scope of this brief presentation, this shows how far-reaching this principle is. Nevertheless, we are still left with one big problem. Granted, this may not have been the ideal form of Avodas Hashem, since Nadav and Avihu acted without being commanded. However, was this action really deserving of the death penalty? We don't generally consider someone who acts without being commanded as a sinner. On the contrary, they may even be a righteous person. They're, they're simply not as lofty as someone who does the same act through the form of a mitzvah, which is infinitely greater. Based on this, why were Nadav and Avihu deserving of death? The answer to this lies in the time and place of this incident. You see, every process contains multiple stages. The first is the spark of creation, which is followed by a slow process of expressing that seed. And then finally, you have the finished product. Take, for example, the growth of a tree. First, there's a seed which goes through a slow growth process as the seed is expressed. And finally, there's the tree itself. A human being grows through the same process as well. Every person begins as a zygote, a single cell, which grows and develops into the end result, a fully formed human being. In every process of creation, the root, the seed, the zygote, is the most important and potent phase. This formative stage is the most delicate. Any error or imperfection present at this stage will have cataclysmic results. For example, if a boy cuts his finger at the age of seven, it's not that bad. You'll take care of it. However, if there is even a minor glitch in the DNA of a zygote, even a single chromosome missing, Everything can go wrong. The results can be catastrophic. This is the key towards answering the Pnei Yeshua's famous question regarding Hanukkah. He asked, why did we need to find Pach Shem and pure olive oil when we defeated the Greeks and reclaimed the Beis HaMikdash? There's a concept called Tumahut Rebetzibor, that when everyone in the community of Klai Yisrael is impure, you don't need pure oil. Impure oil can suffice. Sir so of Yosef Engel explains that while this is normally true, this specific case is an exception. 
This wasn't just some standard case of lighting the menorah. This was the Chanukah Samizbeach, the inauguration of the temple. Since this was the inception, the root period of creation, everything needed to be perfect. The oil, therefore, needed to be pure. And so too here by Nadav and Aviyu, they sinned during the Chanukah's Hamishkan, the inauguration of the tabernacle. Nefesh HaChaim explains that this was like the rebuilding of the world. This creative process was in its root stage. Anything even slightly amiss would be devastating. We simply could not afford to begin the wrong way. Otherwise, the Mishkan would have been built on these faulty principles. This is why Nadav and Avi received such a severe punishment, because they sinned at the root stage of the process. Their act and its repercussions were both exponentially multiplied because of this timing. You see, every act that we do is multi-layered. And therefore... Our decisions must be as well. First, we have to determine what exactly we are doing. Is this action a reflection of a deep truth? And therefore objectively valuable? Or is it meaningless? Next, we we must question why we are doing this act. Am I doing it with the intention of connecting with the infinite will of Hashem? Or am I simply expressing my own limited ego? As we then proceed to undertake the action, we must ask ourselves, how are we doing it? Are we maintaining our commitment to the idealistic connection that we wanted to achieve, or are we just going through the motions? May we be inspired to search for the truth, to live by that truth, and connect to Hashem in the deepest and truest of ways.